All right, we have a young man with us, and until last week, I don't know how long it had been since I'd seen him, but he didn't have this fuzzy face. <laughs> He's got a fuzzy face now, so anyway, it's, uh, it's been a while. His dad and I was back there talking a while ago, and we both have old, old Dodges, and we still have them. <laughs> we were wondering about that a while ago, so anyway... Daniel, it's good to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and bring us a message, would you? Good morning. Can y'all hear me all right? It's an honor and privilege to be at this gathering at Emmanuel Baptist Church here in Springdale. Well, as Brother Earl said, my name is Daniel Rakes, and I'm a member at University Baptist Church in Fayetteville, and I'm one of the pastoral interns there, and uh, it's an honor to bring God's Word to you this morning. And uh, as we looked at 1 Peter last week, we're going to continue in chapter 2 this week. Uh, So if you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. You may have heard or seen in the news lately that last month on Sunday, December 9th, Pastor Wang Yi and over 100 members of his church over in China, they were arrested because they were following Jesus. Well, Christians, they are being imprisoned and locked up right now in China as we speak. But this degree of persecution, we we may not see that kind of persecution yet here in the United States. But it's real, and we're, fi- we're facing a real opposition from our secular culture. We live in a culture that is increasingly opposed to the message of Jesus Christ and his exclusivity. But Peter's readers here, they were experiencing a similar opposition. They were being slandered and mocked and reviled and being accused of being evil because they were following Jesus Christ. Well, last week in 1 Peter chapter 1, We saw that because of this great salvation of our souls that God has caused in us by His Spirit, and in the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, Peter says to us we are to live holy lives because we are like exiles here. We are awaiting our Lord Jesus to come back. We are waiting to obtain that final salvation on the last day. And we will receive an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It is being kept in heaven for us. Well, if there is a main idea this morning, it is this. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ secures our salvation on that last day. So we joyfully suffer for him by living holy lives in an unholy world. Well, in light of this great salvation that we have been given by God, Peter has called his readers to live holy lives in chapter 1. He's called them to not only live holy lives, but to love the brotherhood, to love one another. And here at the beginning of chapter 2, he is now calling God's people. He's calling them to long for the word of God. So let's look at the first 
three verses in chapter 2. And this is our first point this morning. Long for the Word of God. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into a salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In verse 1, we see that the word so there can be, it can be read as therefore. Therefore, because Peter seems to be referring back to this great salvation in chapter 1. They have been begotten by the word of God in chapter 1, verse 23. This word of God that is living and abiding, they have been brought to life by this word. And so Peter says, put away all this malice and deceit and slander and envy. These things are in opposition to longing for God's word. Put those things away and long for the pure spiritual word of God. These vices are things that destroy such unity among believers in the church. Well, in chapter 2, or verse 2 here, we see, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Well, this spiritual milk that we are to long for, Peter is saying it is the word of God. In the original language, the word Peter here, it refers to the word of God, God's holy word, the living word of God. And we are being sanctified and growing up in our salvation by this word. And so Peter here is not saying that these believers are immature in their faith, but he is saying just like a newborn infant longs for milk, you too as believers in Christ long for the spiritual milk, the word of the living God. And in verse 3 here we see Peter conditions the command for the longing of the word of God on whether one is truly born again. And Peter is confident that, yes, they have been born again, so therefore long for his word. Because they have been born again into a living hope. We saw that in chapter 1. Well, we are already into a new year, 2019. And as it is with new years, various resolutions come with it. You may have made your own resolutions this year. And we find that many people, they want to make resolutions that make them better. I want to look better. I want to be more fit. I want to eat better and, and so on. Well, you that are here this morning, have you made a resolution to know God and his word better? Have you made a resolution to get to know God better through the reading and meditating and praying of God's word? Would you make it a priority this year? Because Peter says, long for this word of God, that you may grow up into this great salvation that we have mercifully been given. So have you created in your life an atmosphere to long for God's word? Well, how, how can we do that? Well, as, as uh, people here at Emmanuel, one thing you can do is find out what is being preached on the next Sunday and be reading through that passage of Scripture throughout the week so that when you come here on Sunday morning, it is not the first time that you're interacting with God's Word. So when the preacher comes and stands and preaches you a passage, you have already read it and been thinking about it. 
Questions are being answered that you had. Receptors are going off in your mind, and you're interacting with God's Word. This is one way you can uh, cultivate uh, in your life a longing for God's Word. Well, here in verses 4 through 10, Peter changes his, his argument, and he changes from living as holy people of God, longing for his word, to proclaiming the gospel of God as Christ's church. Let's read verses 4 through 10. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, wh why do we need to live this holy lifestyle, this holy way that Peter has been commanding us to do? Jesus says it's his plan to build us up into a holy household, a holy temple. This, you see, is where God's presence dwells now. It is within his people no longer as in the Old Testament, in physical man-made temples and tabernacles, but now that Christ has come, Christ is the new temple, and he dwells by his Spirit in his people who are united to him by faith. And so we see here in verse 4 that Peter is drawing this theme from Psalm 118, verse 22. This is where the Messiah was prophesied to be a stone that the builders would reject. And we know that in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, Peter, he tells the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of his day, he said, you who crucified Jesus, he was the Messiah. You are the builders that rejected the stone. Jesus was that stone. He was the Messiah of God to come. And he did come, and you crucified him. We see that Jesus is a living stone. Why? Because as the stone that God laid on the foundation in Zion, he died, yes, but he rose from the grave on the third day. He is a living stone. He is a precious and chosen stone of God. And so although rejected by men, Jesus is chosen and precious to God. And that is the pattern for the people of God today. And is the pattern for Peter's readers here in the first century they were, as chapter 1 says, elect exiles in the dispersion. We see in Asia there, in minor Asia. These churches were people of God that were scattered. They were people who they were despised by many for living for Jesus. They were precious in God's sight, though. So although they are being slandered and mocked and ostracized for follow being followers of Christ, 
Peter says, because Jesus, the living stone, was chosen and precious to God, you too, because you are following him, you are chosen. You are the elect exiles in, in the dispersion. You are precious to him. And so just as Jesus was destined for vindication after his suffering on the cross by rising from the dead, we too, like Jesus, will be vindicated on that last day we saw in chapter 1. We are longing for that day and the last time that will be revealed when we will inherit our final salvation. One well, verse 5, Peter now compares us to living stones. We are living stones because we have faith in the resurrected God-man Jesus who is the living stone. And we're being built into a spiritual house. God's spirit indwells us. We are his people. We are the church of God and we are the new temple now. But why are we being built up in verse 5? Peter says is to offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices. Well, what are these spiritual sacrifices? Well, we get a glimpse of it further on in verse 9. What does he say in verse 9? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, the primary function of the church of God is to proclaim the excellencies of God. And this being transferred from the realm of darkness into God's marvelous light is referencing our great salvation that has been brought into us by God, by his Holy Spirit. By the power of his Spirit, by the proclamation of his word, we repent and believe in Christ. And this transference from darkness to light is referring to salvation, and as the church of God, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, we, as God's people, are to proclaim this good news of Jesus Christ. Proclaim it in our community, to our co-workers, to our friends, on our family. We proclaim this great salvation to the ends of the earth so that some people from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation will repent and believe. And one day, some from everywhere will be around God's throne worshiping him forever and ever. That is God's plan here we see in 1 Peter to proclaim the excellencies of God our Father through Jesus Christ by the power of his Spirit. Well, Peter is now going to ground this in Old Testament Scripture. We see this in verse 6. He says it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. And we know that that is Jesus Christ that God has laid down. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus will not be put to shame. You see, Jesus is our sure foundation. He is our cornerstone. He is, by virtue of faith in him, a living stone. And by virtue of faith in him, we become living stones in the household of God. So in verse 7, Peter says, It is the honor for you who believe. We will be honored on that final last day when it is to be revealed when Christ comes back because we have trusted in God's living stone. We have placed our faith in the chief cornerstone. But in verse 7, Peter also says, for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. You see, Peter continues the thought from verse 7 here, by quoting Isaiah 8, verse 14. And in Isaiah chapter 8, Peter is saying that 
those who do not believe, they stumble over Jesus. Jesus it's not like a stone that uh, Jesus is, is like a, a capstone or a keystone holding up an archway. No, Peter is referencing Isaiah and he's saying this stone that Jesus is, it's one that is on a sure foundation. It is secure, and people who do not believe in him, they stumble over him because they want to not believe in him. That is the kind of stone that Isaiah is portraying and that Peter is applying to Jesus Christ and fulfilling. Well, why do some people stumble and fall over Jesus, who's the cornerstone? We see this in verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word. Well, what's the word? The word here is what Peter's been talking about so far. It is the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the living and abiding word that has brought us to a new, a new life in him. So they're disobeying him because they're choosing to reject him. And at the same time, Peter says it is because they were destined to disobey the word and reject him. So those who do not believe are responsible for their choice, and yet without God being morally responsible, they have been appointed to disobey and stumble, Peter says. So Peter here is highlighting both man's responsibility in rejecting Christ and God's sovereignty in controlling all of history. But why is Peter here emphasizing God's sovereignty in people stumbling over Jesus? Peter is wanting to comfort his readers here. They are suffering persecution, verbal persecution, for following Jesus. And he wants to comfort them in his letter. He wants to comfort them that even though they are living in an evil world and suffering for Jesus, this world is not beyond his control. He is controlling all of history. He is ruling and reigning even over those who are opposing him and his people. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of his Father on high, ruling as King of kings and Lord of lords. He has all evil powers and angels and authorities under subjection under his feet. He rules as Lord of the universe. And Peter wants this to be a comfort to his people. Though they may suffer now, they will be vindicated on that last day. Well, in verse 9, we see just as God appoints the disobedient to destruction, on the contrary, believers belong to God because they have been elected and chosen by him. We see that in verse 1. They are the elect exiles in the dispersion. You see, the nation of Israel was God's royal priesthood in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel was supposed to image God to the nations, but they failed again and again, and twice they went into Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. God judged his own people for not living holy lives. And so where Israel failed, Jesus came. Jesus lived a perfect life. He perfectly imaged God to the nations. And because Jesus is the new Israel, we who have placed our faith and trust in him are now his people. And now we, as God's church in the New Testament, we image God to the nations. We proclaim his excellencies. And so Peter is applying all these titles, these beautiful titles that were for the nation of Israel of the Old Testament. He now is calling us, as God's church, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and we proclaim God's excellencies. 
because we have been brought out of darkness and into God's marvelous light of salvation. Well, in verse 10 here, Peter is quoting Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. And in Hosea chapter 2, God's repudiating his people for not obeying him. He's, he's telling them, I'm going to judge you, but then I'm going to bring you together and form you back into my people. And so as Peter's readers here, who are mostly Gentiles, they were living in disobedience and in darkness. And Peter is saying, he's applying that Old Testament passage in Hosea to the church now. He's saying, you were living in disobedience, but God is going to make you into his people. You were not shown mercy at first, but now God is going to show you mercy. You will receive mercy in Christ Jesus. Well, under the old covenant, the priests were consecrated to God by the blood of a slaughtered lamb. And just like those priests of God in the Old Testament, the Christian in the New Testament is fully consecrated to Christ. We are priests of God, Peter says, a holy priesthood. And so it is the mark of a Christian to be honest and upright and Christ-like so that the world would be compelled to say that we differ from other people. And so local churches here are where God's presence dwells. There is not a better evangelistic tool than the local church. So I encourage you all, invite people to come to church. Invite people to come and see who God is by us living as his church. Does knowing this change how we act in church? Brothers and sisters, live in such a way that when people see us, they see as us as priests of the Lord. We have received this office of holy priesthood. Let us honor it, let us live up to it, and let us pray for grace to fulfill it. What, not only are we a people who are to long for God's word and who are being built into the household of God as his church to proclaim his excellencies, but we are to live, number three, as sojourners and exiles by going to war for Jesus and by being a witness for Jesus. So number three, we live as sojourners and exiles by first going to war for Jesus. We see this in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You see, Peter's now turning from who we are as a church, and he calls us to wage war on the passions of the flesh. He's shifting from a relationship between us and God to his chosen people and the relationship we have with others. He's exhorting us to abstain from the passions because God's Spirit lives within us. And you see, as Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are not exempt from the passions of the flesh. Peter says that they wage war on our soul, which means we are in a war. You see, the Christian life is not one that is let go and let God. No, the Christian is at war against the flesh. And we will overcome the flesh by living by the Spirit, Peter says. So, dear Christian, the Bible commands us to put on the whole armor of God. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 6. So, dear Christian, fasten on the belt of truth that has been accredited to our account. Put on the breastplate of righteousness that we have in Christ Jesus. 
Put on as shoes the readiness to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Pick up that shield of faith that can extinguish every fiery dart of the evil one. Put on that helmet of salvation that we have in God that we have received in mercy. And then, after Jesus knights you as one who is in his kingdom, as one of noble and divine birth, and he calls you to stand, take a firm grasp of that same sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, so that we may be able to slay any desire of the flesh that comes to wage war against our soul. And finally, pray at all times so that we may persevere until that last time. We are not fighting against flesh and blood, against rulers or authorities. We are against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, a present evil darkness of this age. But we will see in chapter 3 next week that Jesus is sitting and ruling and reigning at the right hand of his Father on high with all those evil powers and authorities under his feet. Well, sub-point two here, we are living as exiles and sojourners by being a witness for Jesus. Well, how do we abstain from these sinful desires? Peter goes on in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, by living virtuous lives, Peter says, you will win some of these Gentiles reviling you over to God. You see, by the living, upright, and good conduct lives that Peter calls us to do, we, by living that way, will cause people to see us and will cause them to repent and believe in Jesus. And Peter says in verse 12, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? I think Peter is saying that is the final day of salvation. Because these Gentiles who are opposed to Jesus, how can they glorify God? Well, by repenting and believing in him. Well, Peter goes on here. How are we to proclaim these excellencies of Christ? He has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Just a word of caution here. Don't think that just living a good, upright life is all the evangelism you must do. Yes, actions sometimes speak louder than words, but let our good lives of conduct in this life help be the means by which we can gain an audience with those who oppose us, so that then we may verbally, with our mouth, speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because how can those believe if they do not hear? We must proclaim verbally, audibly, the message of Jesus Christ. So let our actions, yes, speak loud. Let them gain an audience and let those who oppose us be curious. Why do we live a different way? And then tell them. Well, not only are we proclaim the gospel through living holy lives, but Peter says, by submitting to governing authorities. And we see this in verses 13 to 25. So read with me. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, the central theme of this last section here in chapter 2 is one of submitting. And Peter is commanding his readers to obey a general truth, to submit to those in authority over you. And he says to do it for the Lord's sake. Well, what does the Lord's sake here mean? Well, Peter is saying because we have submission of our own to our Lord and King and Master. Submit to those authorities that God has placed over you. And so in verse 14 here, we see Peter wants his readers to submit to literally the king, and it would have been the emperor during his readers' time. So Peter is going from the highest of highest authority on the human level. Submit to the king who is over you. And even, in verse 15, those governing authorities under the emperor's rule, because they are set in place to punish what is evil and to commend what is good. And Peter's telling his readers here, Submit to all these authorities. They are all under God's control. Submit to them, and thereby you are submitting to God, your master. Well, he not only wants them to be concerned about their outward behavior, but the motive behind their behavior of submitting. We are to submit as free people, as slaves of God. We are no longer slaves to our sin in the present darkness. No, we have been set free from those shackles, but now we have become new slaves, new slaves of God. And only true slaves of God are ultimately free to live to God in submission. One well, verse 17, this section ends with four commands. Peter says, honor everyone. Everyone should be honored because everyone is created in the likeness and image of our creator. Love the brotherhood. Peter's already commanded us in chapter 1 to love the church, to love our brothers and sisters. We have a close connection. Jesus is our common denominator. And Peter says, fear God and honor the emperor. Yes, we honor the emperor. He is too made in the image of God. But fear God. Only God alone is to be feared. And Peter goes on in this last section, in verse 18 to 25, Live as exiles by submitting to masters. We proclaim the gospel in society by obeying and submitting to our masters. 
Peter just exhorted believers to submit to government, and now he says to slaves, submit to your masters. Now, one thing we need to recognize is that the slavery here is not a race-based slavery that we know of in our uh, North American United States history. But that does not mean that the slaves in the New Testament were brutally beaten. You see, they were to obey their masters because God placed them there. What is Peter's main point here? Because there are believing slaves who are suffering unjustly. Well, Peter's encouragement to these believing slaves is endure through the suffering. Endure because their relationship will be rewarded. He says in verse 20, what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? But he says, if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so verse 19 and 20 here go together. He says, this is a gracious thing. When you suffer for doing good, you suffer unjustly. He's encouraging even the slaves, the lowest of the low in society. You have an eternal hope. You will be given an inheritance that is unfading and undefiled on that last day. So keep enduring and suffering unjustly because you will be vindicated in the last time. Well, in these last few verses here, Peter is giving Jesus Christ, our Lord, as the ultimate example for us. Peter is saying how Jesus suffered, and he is applying here in these last three verses Isaiah 53 to Jesus. Isaiah 53 was a prophecy of the Messiah to come, a Messiah who was a suffering servant, a suffering servant who was God's appointed one. And Peter says Jesus was this Messiah. This suffering servant pointed to him. And so Peter's point here is to put Jesus forth as an example. We are to suffer unjustly just as Jesus did. Jesus lived a perfect life, and yet he was ridiculed and mocked and scorned and ultimately crucified on a tree. In other words, Peter says, we as believers... We as believers are to follow Christ in his suffering by remembering that his suffering is the basis for our salvation. Peter says this in verse 24. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, Christ's atoning death for us is so that we can live a new life, one of righteousness. And the reason Peter says tree here is because in the Old Testament, Anyone who is hung upon a tree is cursed by God. You see, Jesus became a curse on that tree, on that cross. He became a curse for our sin. He died in our place. He is our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sin. And so the basis of our salvation is because of Jesus and what he did on our behalf on that tree, on the tree on Calvary. And so in verse 25, Peter says, You were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, Peter's reminding his readers in the first century, Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of their soul, not the emperor, not the king. For us, it is not he who sits in the Oval Office in the White House. It is not anyone else. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our king. He is our overseer and shepherd and master. So conversion then is returning to Jesus Christ as ruler and Lord of our life. 
Well, over the holidays, uh, my sisters and I took a trip to Branson. And uh, Silver Dollar City, one of the things I like about Silver Dollar City is, is you can view the blacksmith shop. And you can see the master craftsman there. He has an anvil on which he beats uh, metal into a knife. And that anvil is rock solid. But that hammer, you can beat it over and over and eventually it will break. But that anvil outlasts many, many hammers. And so that hammer will eventually break. Patient endurance is what causes that anvil to outlast any hammer. And so brothers and sisters, may we be like that anvil that outlasts all the hammers. May we be those who are, while we are opposed by, the gospel, by those who oppose the gospel of Christ, may we outlast them. May we endure our suffering for Jesus so that every ridicule and mockery that comes our way, we withstand it and persevere and endure it. We will outlast those who reject us because we are awaiting that final day when we will be inheriting our final salvation. It is being kept in heaven for us in that last time. And so, dear Christians, we have seen from this chapter we are to long for the word of God. We are to proclaim the gospel of God as his church, as his people. We are to live as sojourners and exiles in this life. We are just pilgrims on our way to our final destination. And we do that by being a witness for Jesus and by slaying all the desires of the flesh along the way. And we are people who proclaim the gospel in our society by submitting to the authorities over us. So, dear Christian, our hope is in the last time when we are vindicated and exalted, just as Jesus, though he suffered for us, was vindicated in his resurrection. And so that causes us to persevere, to live for Jesus, to be holy as he is holy, and to witness for him. May this hope help us to persevere until that time, whatever accusations and suffering we may go through along the way. If you are not a Christian here this morning, would you consider the great salvation you have been hearing in 1 Peter here? Because we are all guilty as sinners before God. All of us have fallen short of his glory. But this is God's great mercy toward us, that he sent his only begotten son to live the perfect life we can never live, to die the death that we deserve. And God accepted his sacrifice as paying penalty for sinners by raising him from the dead on the third day. And he ascended to the majesty on high where he's ever interceding on our behalf. And he is ruling as king of the universe with all evil powers in subjection to him. Find comfort in this. Oh, would you believe in this Jesus today? Would you repent of living for yourself and the fleshly desires and turn and follow Christ to live for him, to persevere for him? Will you trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which secures an eternal inheritance for you? Uh, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your living and active word. God, that it is sufficient to bring people to come to know you. That by your word and the power of your spirit, you bring people unto yourself. You cause a living hope to be born in us. Thank you that you have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us. That we can persevere joyfully even in suffering because our hope is not in this life. 
It is in the life to come, where we will live with you forever and ever. Lord, thank you for all your great mercies. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.